everyone. Welcome back to Grounded with Pastor Matt Round. This is episode 11, and today we are going to be answering the question, if God is real, why won't he reveal himself? We got this question from a listener, and today Pastor Matt is going to answer it. Hello, Pastor Matt. Hey, Noah. Good to see you again. All right. So uh, if God is real, why won't he reveal himself? And that is a great question. And I think uh, the question is probably driven from a non-believing standpoint. If we're talking to uh, people who do not believe that there is a God or maybe who are agnostic and say we can't know that there's a God. How do we convince them that God is real, especially when a common pushback would be if God is real, like you say he is, why doesn't he do whatever? But I also think that this is important for us as believers to really get settled in our mind, because I think we can subtly ask this question uh, another way. Uh, and that's, God, if you are who you say you are, then why don't you you know, fill in the blank with whatever. Why don't you get me that job? Why don't you fix this particular relationship? Why won't you change this particular difficult situation? And whatever it might be. Um, Because we have the theological knowledge where we talk about God as being omnipotent or all-powerful. And we talk about God being good and loving. And we think that if we were God, all-powerful and all-loving, then we would do these things for our children that would feel good. And um, when we unpack it that way, you start to realize there's a kind of an arrogance to that where you would question what God does, especially as someone who is not all-powerful, who is not all-good, who is not all-knowing. We don't come at the situation with the same uh, resources that God does, and yet we feel pretty pretty free to ask the question of why he's not doing it the way we would. Um, And it boils down to the idea of, well, God, why aren't you doing it my way? So we might not ask whether God exists or not, but we might be led down a very similar path uh, of saying, if you are who you say you are, why don't you do what I want you to do? And the plain and simple answer is that he's God and we're not. He's the creator, we're the creation, and he's not obligated to do anything that we think he ought to. Um, But more than that, he's promised to do what is good for us from an eternal perspective, not just a worldly perspective. Now, that's largely another podcast, but I want us to see that there's there's different ways where even believers struggle with this idea of if God is, then why doesn't he? And again, lots of different ways that we can answer that based on the specifics of the question, but let's go with the existence of God. And again, maybe looking at it from a non-believer's perspective. If God exists, if God is the God of the Bible, if God is as the Bible and Christians describe him, uh, then why doesn't he show himself? Uh, Why not do something remarkable, right? A message on the moon. I don't know. I'm God. I'm here. I'm real. And that, that sounds almost logical. If there's this good God, if there is this all powerful God, if there's this God who desires people to be in right relationship with him, then wouldn't he do what is necessary to do that? Wouldn't he want to reveal himself? Um, and, and the simple answer to that question that most people can't land on this specifically, I guess, is that he has. Uh, the question set up, if God is real, why won't he reveal himself? The answer to that question is God has revealed himself. So if you're listening, and uh, I hope you have your Bible with you, to turn to Psalm 19 at some point and read through that. Because in Psalm 19, David is talking about 
the revelation of God, God's self-revelation to people. And the first half of the psalm talks about how God does that through what he's made. It starts off, the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies above proclaim his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, night to night reveals knowledge. In other words, the heavens, uh, the creation that God has made cries out about who he is. Day and night, uh, stars and moon in the darkness, sun shining brilliantly in the daytime, all of it reveals this knowledge, this understanding that there is a God and that he is the one that's made this. And it's a universal message. Uh, Psalm 19.3 says, There's no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Um, creation doesn't speak with an audible English, Spanish, whatever language you want to fill in there. It doesn't speak that way, because if it did, it would be limited. It would be limited by the very nature of language that there would only be a certain section of the world's population who could hear it and comprehend it. Creation is actually much more comprehensive than that. It speaks a universal language where there are no words. The design, the beauty, the scale, the scope of it cries out about the God who made it. And so uh, there's this universal aspect of how it speaks. There's no place on earth that's kind of hidden from the revelation of the reality of God. And then David goes on to give this example of the sun and how in the heavens God has made uh, this this tent, this dwelling for the sun, and it goes across the sky by its designed course, and it's like the sun delights to do exactly what God designed it to do. And in verse 6 he says, It's rising, talking about the sun, is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. And when you and I think about the sun, we might think of its primary quality or characteristic as being light. And why didn't David say there's nothing hidden from its light? Well, because you could be blind and be ignorant of the light of the sun. But even someone who's never seen a thing can walk outside and feel the warmth of the sun. Uh, Even in the deepest part of the winter, wherever you are on earth, you still benefit from the warmth of the sun. Life depends on it. And so it's, again, this universal picture that there is not a spot not a place, not a person on creation that's not exposed to the reality of who God is by what he's made. Um, Now, we call that natural revelation or general revelation. It's revealed through what we observe, what we experience, and it's available to everyone. And the rest of Psalm 19, from verse 7 on to the end, talks about specific revelation. That's the revelation of God that is given through his word. Uh, David talks about the importance and the blessing of the law um, that God gave to his kind of covenant people. And we'll talk about scripture more next week. So we'll leave that there for now rather than getting too far down that rabbit trail. Um, But the first answer to the question is, if there is a God, why doesn't he reveal himself? The easy answer is that he has. And then that does bring a very valid second question. If God has revealed himself and if that revelation is not only broadly available, but universally available to everyone in every time and every place, then why doesn't everyone believe? If God has revealed himself for who he is, then why do we still have people that not only question, but that outright reject the fact that there's a God? And Paul talks about that. And so, again, if you're following along in your Bible, you're going to want to turn to Romans chapter 1. And in Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18, Paul writes this, He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. 
for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Basically, what Paul says is that there are things that you can know about God simply by virtue of existing in his creation, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature. You you live in creation, and by virtue of the way that this creation is laid out, the nature of the world and the universe around us, you know, you know that there is a God and that you are not him, that this God is eternally powerful, that he is divine, that he is other than you. It sets up this automatic, intrinsic, internal creation, creator, distinction in the heart of every man. And so the reality is that leaves what Paul says is everyone without an excuse because everyone lives in the same creation, because everyone is exposed to the same revelation of who God is. Everyone is equally without excuse. And the idea of being agnostic, the idea that we cannot know whether there's a God might sound um, kind of noble at first. The idea, well, we can't, we can't be regimented in a belief about something we can't prove. We can't be dogmatic about something that we can't prove. And there seems to be kind of maybe an academic neutrality to that or a moral neutrality to that. And it, again, it's perceived as something noble, something seeking. Again, if you read Romans 1, it's not. It's actually intellectually and morally dishonest to say that we cannot know. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. To say that you cannot know whether or not there's a God is not a sign of intellectual or philosophical neutrality and wondering. It's not a search for truth. To say that you cannot know whether or not there is a God takes a willful, moral, sinful act of suppression. That's not a popular message, and yet that's about as clear as it can get reading Romans 1.18. It's like if you got into the pool in the summertime and you have a beach ball filled with air and you push it underwater, it takes an active force to keep that ball filled with air under the water. And as soon as you let that go, the ball bursts up through the surface. And it's a lot of fun in the summer when you're talking about a beach ball. But when you're talking about the knowledge of God, it takes a willful, forceful act to push down to suppress that knowledge. True neutrality would see a knowledge of God absolutely, inescapably bursting forth, simply by virtue of looking around the creation and recognizing that something, someone, great powerful, and altogether different from you made this whole thing happen. And if that's the case, then what do people put in place of recognizing God? And that's what Paul talks about next, starting in verse 21. He says, for although they knew God, so there's that implication again, those who say there is no God, those who suppress that truth, they know God. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God 
for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And what you see is the irony, and really a, a tragic irony, is that people begin to worship the creation rather than the creator. People take what should point to God and they worship it as God. And in our Western mindset, we say, well, that was for an earlier time and place, a less sophisticated people who thought there were spirits in the trees and the wind and the rain and that we don't do that anymore. Now we simply say we can't know. And yet now we have a, a society that is wholly engaged in worshiping the creation uh, simply by continuing to pour out phrases like Mother Earth, the idea that somehow the creation is the source of our life, of sustaining our life. That's an idolatrous understanding that places creation where the creator ought to be. Um, we might be more sophisticated in our language. We might not have an idol on the shelf, but those things that we worship are parts of creation where they are not wholly occupied by the creator of all of it. Then we pull back and we say, well, if that were the case, then maybe it's just that creation doesn't do a good enough job. If God would simply do something that is absolutely outside of the normal created order, if God would just do the miraculous, well, then people would surely believe. If God would just completely throw off their normal expectation, then how could they help but acknowledge that there's a God? Well, the fact is that Jesus spoke to that. And in Luke chapter 16, uh, Jesus tells a parable about a rich man and a poor man named Lazarus. And uh, the rich man lives with everything uh, except a recognition of who God is and right worship. And the poor man, Lazarus, live with, lives with nothing but is rightly related to God, and they die. And the rich man is taken to hell. Uh, Lazarus, Lazarus is caught up to paradise, Abraham's side, as it's called in the ESV. And uh, in Hades, the rich man is in torment. And he, through this parable, Jesus gives us a picture where he can see Lazarus in his rest and he calls out in uh, Luke 16, 24, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. And Abraham says, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, there's a great chasm that's been fixed, so that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. So the idea that this life is it. You make your determination on the relationship to God based on what you have in this life. There's no do-overs, no second chances, no crossing heaven to hell. It speaks to the finality of judgment, really. But then being fixed in his torment, this is what that rich man says in Luke 16, verse 27. Rich man said, I beg you then to send him, that is Lazarus, to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. So what's rich, the rich man asking? Well, send Lazarus back from the dead to warn my brothers. Because guess what? If dead Lazarus goes back and talks to those who are living, 
then how could they help but understand that this is real and that they need to change? If God would do this miraculous thing, then surely my brothers would turn. And in verse 29, this is the response. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear. They have God's revelation. It speaks clearly about who he is. And if they miss it in the law and the prophets, then a ghost isn't going to change their mind. Verse 30, and he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes back to them from the dead, they will repent. And Abraham says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, that's fascinating, given what we know about the life and the work of Jesus Christ. If God would only do the miraculous, surely people would believe. And yet, Jesus Christ is born in poverty in Bethlehem, exactly as the prophets said he would. He grows and he ministers in perfect obedience to God and in fulfillment of all that the prophets and the law said that he would. He does the miraculous. And we could sit here and list off the miracles, calming the wind and the waves, healing, casting out demons, multiplying bread and fish, and on and on it goes. And yet you come to the end of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, and what do you have? A remarkable few who believe. Why? Well, because the problem wasn't information. The problem is a heart problem. We can sit here and we can say, if only God would do the miraculous, then surely people would believe. And the reality is they do not. They actively suppress the clear revelation of creation that surrounds them every day. They will certainly suppress any specific miraculous act. Why? Because it's not a head problem. And this matters. It matters because it matters how we talk about the gospel. We think somehow that God needs us to defend him from an unbelieving world. And that what keeps those people, or maybe specifically what keeps those smart people from being saved, is that just they haven't been presented uh, the gospel by anyone who's as smart as they are. Someone who can compete, who can keep up on their intellectual level. Um, The fact is you aren't dealing with someone who doesn't know God because they have not come across the right brilliant scientific argument. Now, does God use science? Absolutely. I believe that science validates the claims of the Bible, uh, just like history and archaeology do. Uh, The more that is discovered, the more our Bibles are validated, that every word that is written is absolutely accurate. But at the end of the day, uh, you're not dealing with someone whose main problem is a lack of information or compelling argument. At the end of the day, you're dealing with someone whose problem is and always has been sin that darkens our hearts, sin that leaves us enchained and shackled slaves to that sin, sin that puts us under the bondage of death. The people that we come across don't need us to be smarter. They don't need us to be more informed. Should you be well-informed? Absolutely. Should you willingly engage and think through 
how science, how reason, how mathematics, how art demonstrates the validity of the Christian worldview, absolutely engage in it because it's do- it does, and it's tremendously affirming to our faith, but it is not faith-giving. For someone to move from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the sun takes a radical heart change. And that power doesn't come through a persuasive argument or a gifted preacher or a clever evangelist. It comes because of the power of the gospel. That's why back in Romans chapter 1, that place where we were reading, uh, in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. What's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes? It's the gospel. To the Jew first and then to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. If God is real, why doesn't he reveal himself? The answer is that he has. And that God who has revealed himself generally in his creation has also specifically revealed himself in his word. And it's there that we find his plan of restoration, his cure for the universal problem of sin and death. And that's the work of Jesus Christ. So when someone asks that question, why doesn't God reveal himself? Don't see it as an open door to a scientific debate. Because at the end of the day, information isn't what changes hearts. See it as an open door for the gospel that right now and always has been the only thing with the power, the authority, the ability to change human hearts. Thank you very much, Pastor Matt. That was a very insightful and true answer. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Um, Next week, we will be answering the question, how do you prove that the Bible is true? That goes in line with this episode. Uh, We'll see you then.